This morning we're finishing up uh, our series in the book of Jacob. For those of you who are here for the first time, you may wonder where the book of Jacob is. It's in the New Testament scriptures. Y'all call it the book of James. But uh, his name was Jacob. Uh, And that's his Hebrew name. That's the Greek name. It just got changed by King James when he decided to have the Bible translated. So we're in the book of James, Jacob, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. I'm going to leave 19 and 20 for you to study on your own. Would you stand with me, as is our custom, as I read the word of God? Jacob, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Say that with me. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Repeat that with me. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Amen. You may be seated. In our lives as believers, in the good times and in the bad times, like we're undergoing right now with this COVID-19 virus, I think there are two things that we have to keep in mind that are of utter foundational importance. Number one, we need to be in the word. The word is the bread that we eat, the word is the drink that we drink, and the word is the air that we breathe. Without any one of those, we do not have spiritual life. We are spiritually dead. And the second is prayer. Now, to some of you, it might sound funny that I would talk about prayer in a congregation of prayerful people. But I'm going to do it anyway. And so this morning's sermon is entitled, Pray Like You Mean It. Pray Like You Mean It. I read a true story once of a couple of men from Alberta, Canada. They were driving home late one night. Canada, the weather's freezing, below zero, and somehow they ran off the road and got stuck in a ditch. And as far as they could see, in the darkness of night, there was no one around for miles. They knew they were in danger, danger of freezing to death, And so in order to keep warm, they pulled the seats out of the Honda that they were driving in and lit them on fire. As the blaze began to die down, they tossed all of their belongings that they weren't wearing on the fire as well. But they only burned for a short time. Finally, they lit the entire car on fire. Well, as daybreak approached, the men saw that they were within walking distance of a nearby house. So they went there to get warm, and that's where the police found them. Now, what is odd about this story is this. The men didn't have to burn their car. And can you guess why they didn't have to burn their car? 
They each had cell phones in their pockets. They had cell phones and they had service. All they had to do was to call and help would have come. But because they failed to think about their phones, they destroyed everything they had. So now you might ask Dennis, why didn't these men use their cell phones? I'm glad you asked. I have no idea why they didn't use their phones. They had communication devices that they didn't use, but it's a mystery as to why they didn't use them. But the question for us today is, why don't believers use a much more advanced communication device they've been given more often than we do? It's a communication device given to us by God, and it's called prayer. Here's another illustration. A man once asked his class, does God answer prayers? And the class erupted with answers like, of course. Well, yes, absolutely, always. He paused a moment and said, well, if that's true, why don't we pray more often? There was an uncomfortable silence in the room. And then they began to open up. And amongst their replies were these two. One, I really don't know how to pray. And two, I just don't know what to say. Now, I'm sure that's what they think the problem is. But I'm not convinced. You see, according to the research that was done by a couple of polling institutions, one was the Pew Forum back in December of 2017, and one was the Barna Research Group in August of 2017, 65% of Americans pray to God. And even 28% of those who said they had no faith said that they'd prayed in the last two months. Now, if you think about it, that's pretty impressive. Until you consider another fact about prayer. You see, there's another study that says the prayer habits of people and churches revealed that 85% of people who pray regularly do not expect to have their prayers answered. So wait a minute. I mean, if 65% of Americans say they pray to God, why on earth would they pray if they don't expect those prayers to be answered in the first place? It doesn't make any sense to me. Unless they don't believe that they're worthy enough or they don't think they're important enough or they don't think that their prayers are valuable enough for our Heavenly Father to deal with. We just don't want to bother him, if you know what I mean. And they read this passage in James, James five sixteen, where it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And they think to themselves, well, that pretty much leaves me out. I'm not all that righteous. I mean, why would God even bother with my prayers? And of course, there's an even more potent reason why people might doubt God would answer their prayers. It's the fear that their request is just too big or too unreasonable for God to even consider. And so listen and listen carefully. God understands that fear. So he introduced us to a man of prayer in this section of scripture. 
A man who's supposed to be a model of what can happen when we pray. And the man's name is Elijah. Elijah? This is the guy who was fed by ravens down by the riverside. This is the guy who raised a young boy from the dead. This is a man who stood on Mount Carmel and defeated all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah and who rode on a fiery chariot up into the heavens. And this is the guy I'm supposed to compare myself with? Elijah is so far out of my league, I can't even compete. I'm not in double A minor leagues. I'm in Z minor leagues. (laughs) And yet, God tells us Elijah wasn't that much different than we are. Quote, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Jacob chapter 5 verse 17. God says Elijah was just like y'all. He was just like me. But Elijah was one of the greatest men in all of the Tanakh. The greatest of the prophets of that age, some say. How could God believe he's just like us? Well, consider this. When God introduces Elijah to us, he introduces him as, quote, depending on what translation you use, Elijah the Tishabite of the inhabitants of Gilead. 1 Kings 17.1. Well, here's a question for you. Where in the world is Tishbe? Well, it's in Gilead. But nobody seems to know where Gilead is. They've never found it. Most scholars seem to agree that Tishbe must have been a small, insignificant town in the middle of no place. It was a backwater community that nobody ever heard of. And so if Elijah didn't come from an important city, well, maybe he came from a powerful family or some impressive tribe. Well, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The only description of Elijah can be summed up Quote, Elijah the Tishabite of Mitshaveh in Gilead. Mitshaveh, by the way, is the Hebrew for Tishbeh. That's what God calls him six times in the Hebrew scriptures. He is an obscure man from an obscure community. So why would God use a man like that? One of my favorite passages in all the Tanakh is 2 Chronicles 16.9. The New King James translates it this way. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Dear ones, God is looking for somebody. But he isn't looking for mighty warriors or religious scholars or people of great wealth or power or importance. He's just looking for someone who's willing to stand up and stand for God, period. Amen. And that was Elijah. He was willing to be God's man and to stand in the gap. Now, I'm sure you've all heard this phrase. It's as true today as it ever was. God is not looking at our abilities. He's looking at our availabilities. And I believe God picked Elijah because he wanted us to see what could happen when he took a nobody and turned him into a somebody. Because Elijah, well, he was a man just like us. So what can we learn from Elijah's prayer? Well, 
Before we get to that, I think we should consider a little bit of background here. Remember that Elijah lived in the day when Israel had split into two nations. There was Judah in the south and the ten tribes of Israel in the north. And at that time, the king of the northern tribes of Israel was a man named Ahab. And he was married to a Philistine woman named Jezebel. Now, partly because of Jezebel's evil influence, Ahab and the nation of Israel had fallen into a kind of what I would call hybrid paganism. They apparently still prayed to God, but they also worshipped some of the other wicked gods of Baal and Asherah. And so because of Ahab and Israel's disobedience and Israel's disobedience, God sent Elijah to tell King Ahab that he and the nation of Israel would be punished with a drought. There would be no rain. There would be no dew. Three and one half years. And then at the end of that three and a half years, Elijah was sent back to King Ahab, where he told the king that he needed to gather all of Israel and all the false prophets of Baal and Asherah and assemble them on top of and all around Mount Carmel. Now we're going to skip the, uh, the cool part of the story where Elijah challenges the people of Israel, quote, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. We're going to skip by that one. But he then challenges the false prophets to a duel. You remember the story? Their gods against his. They lose. God wins. And all the prophets of Baal and Asher are put to death. Well, that's the cool part of the story. That's the part where we see what Elijah can do. But now we're going to look at the cooler part. We get to see what God does and what God can do. We're told, quote, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. He put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, quote, go up now, look toward the sea. Now, if you've not been on the top of Mount Carmel, you don't understand how cool this story is. Because when you look to the west from the top of Mount Carmel on a clear day, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. And you can imagine this small little cloud starting to appear and getting bigger and bigger and darker and coming towards you on top of Mount Carmel. Go up now, look toward the sea, he said. And he went up and looked and said, quote, there is nothing. And he said, go again. Seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you, end quote. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and with wind. There was great rain. And Ahab rode off and went with Jez, into Jezreel, 1 Kings 18, verses 41 to 45. Well, that's the story of the prayer that Elijah prayed. That's an example of how we can pray. You just have to go up on top of Mount Carmel. No. And the issue for us this morning is figuring out how we can pray like Elijah did. How we can shake the heavens. How we can bring down the rain of God's blessings. And I saw 
four very useful things here that we can benefit from in this story. First, did you notice how Elijah prayed? He prayed with his head between his knees. I've tried that. It's really uncomfortable. And this seems to be the only time in Scripture where someone does pray that way. So why would Elijah pray that way? Well, I think Elijah did it that way because it was uncomfortable. Listen, have you ever been in prayer, even deeply serious prayer, and you've suddenly found that your mind has drifted off? We all have. You're praying along and suddenly your mind has drifted off to something you have to do or remember a conversation you had yesterday and wish you'd have said something you didn't or you find yourself worrying about an upcoming Pepco bill. You didn't mean to, but you got distracted. And Elijah didn't want, I think that maybe he didn't want to get distracted. You see, prayer was the tool God had given him to fulfill his mission. Without this prayer, rain wasn't coming down. And so Elijah chose the most uncomfortable posture to pray so that he would not get distracted. I am not suggesting that you pray with your head between your knees. For some of us, it's not hard. It's just plain impossible. I am asking you to pray without distractions, to pray in a place where you can concentrate on what you're saying and concentrate on the one to whom you're saying it. Two, he prayed repeatedly. 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 And that's not six and a half times, that's seven times. He didn't get that on this area. How many times did he pray? Seven times. Why? Because the power in making it rain depended upon the prayer of Elijah. Granted, God could have done it all by himself, but he gave that power to Elijah, just like he gave that power to us. But a serious prayer often takes more than one time on our knees. Notice Elijah prayed the first time, sends his servant to check the sky, nothing happens. He did that again and again and again, seven times. And on the seventh time, this small cloud comes rising out of the sea and Elijah knows that prayer has been effective. There's another wonderful example of this in the New Covenant Scriptures. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Then he, Yeshua, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge or vindicate me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will vindicate her, lest by her continual coming she may weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? 
I think of a man who has a boulder in his backyard. He lives in town, so blowing the boulder up isn't exactly an option. At least it would kind of annoy his neighbors, if you know what I mean. And he doesn't have the money to have someone haul it away. So what does he do? He gets himself a sledgehammer, and he begins to hammer away at the rock. He strikes it once, twice, ten times, twenty times, and eventually, even on the one hundredth blow, the rock cracks. Now here's a question. Which blow cracked the rock? They all did, thank you. They all did. It's the same with prayer, dear ones. Too often believers give up when they don't get an answer after their first few tries. Think about this. If Elijah had quit praying after the sixth prayer, would it have rained? Probably not. That's why the Bible says we, quote, ought to pray and not lose heart. Thirdly, Elijah prayed, please listen to me, specifically, specifically. So I have a quiz for you. Ready? What did Elijah pray for? Rain. Rain. That's right. You win a prize. Someone will give it to you. (laughs) This past week, I was thinking about this part of the sermon while praying for a certain person's needs. And I caught myself saying, God bless so-and-so, and it suddenly occurred to me, what did I mean by that? How am I asking God to bless this person? So I tried shifting gears and prayed, God help so-and-so. Again, I was convicted that this meant nothing. What was I asking God to help this individual with? Think about this. Did Elijah pray, God bless Israel? No. Or God help Israel? No. He prayed for rain. He prayed for a specific purpose. It was a specific prayer. And I think that we should be clear on what it is we want God to do. If we don't pray for a specific thing or purpose, how in the world will we know if God has answered our prayer in the way we want it? Or maybe answered it in a way we didn't want? And lastly, Elijah prayed in faith. Jacob 1, 4-8 tells us, quote, Ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, do you remember at the start of the sermon where I mentioned a study where 85% of those who pray don't expect their prayers to be answered? So... I'm going to get kind of personal here. How many of you have ever doubted that God would answer your prayers? I have. And I would wager that Elijah might have too because he was just like us, right? In fact, there's a lot of folks in Scripture who suffered doubt. Abraham doubted God. Moses doubted God. So did the disciples of Messiah. Down God. Even the most seasoned and mature believer can find it hard to avoid doubt. That's why one of the most comforting passages in the scripture is when Yeshua was approached by a father 
who wanted him to heal his child. And Yeshua said he would if this man believed. And the father replied, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. So did Yeshua just turn and walk away because he had doubts? No. Yeshua healed that man's child. And why? Because God respects that kind of honesty. But God also expects faith in our prayers. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, please follow me and don't get mad at me if this applies to you because I think it applies to the majority of y'all. We tend to hedge our bets on our prayers. We tend to hedge our bets on our prayers. I wonder at times if when we pray, this is what God hears. I know this isn't going to happen, but I'm going to pray for it anyway because I know that's what I should be doing. One of the most common ways we do this is by praying, if it is your will, would you please do this? I'm just going to let that sink in a minute. God, if it's your will, will you please? It's like we're trying to give God an out just in case he decides not to do this. It's like we don't want to embarrass him or anything. We don't want to hurt his feelings when he doesn't act. But here's the deal. Do you believe that God can do whatever he decides to do? Do you believe that God can answer your prayer if it was according to his will? Do you believe that God doesn't need your permission to answer your prayer? So pray that way. We all know God doesn't have to answer our prayers. You can't force him to do things. And we all know he won't do something that's not according to his will. So don't bring it up. (laughs) You don't have to. Pray as if he will do what you've asked. Don't give him an out. Don't try to not hurt his feelings. Dear ones, he's a big God. He can handle it. Just tell it like it is. Tell him what you'd like him to do and say it like you believe he will do what you've asked. I've had many prayers God didn't answer the way I prayed. It's okay. I'll just keep on praying in faith anyway. The book of Hebrews tells us that because of the blood of Messiah, we now have the right to enter boldly into the presence of God. So don't be timid. Oh, dear Lord, if it's your will, don't be timid. I'm getting too worked up here. Just tell God what's on your heart and let him figure out how to answer that prayer or not. That's his job, not yours. So let me close with this. I read this story of a pastor concerning prayer. This is not my story. It's his story, but please listen. I learned this lesson at the last congregation I served. The daughter of a couple from our church had gotten pregnant and had gone to the local hospital for her delivery. Being the preacher, I did my preacherly duty and sat with the couple as we waited for the hospital staff to tell us the good news about the child's birth. But the news wasn't good. The nurse came into the waiting room and said she had sad news for us. The baby's oxygen level was below 90%. 
Now, I hadn't a clue what that meant, but the couple I was sitting with were both nurses, and they knew that this was a death sentence. The local hospital was going to ship the child to Riley Hospital in Indianapolis, but I wanted to know, but wanted to know if we'd like to say our goodbyes to the baby before they did that. The family went in first, and then it was my turn. I put on the blue hat, the shoe covers, the gown, and entered the infant ICU. It was a long, narrow room with warming beds on either side, and one warming bed at the end of the room where this little girl lay, buck naked, and connected to all kinds of intravenous tubes and monitors was where I was headed. The nurse was looking at the displays above the bed and was looking sad and distraught. She, like everyone else, knew this child was going to die. I was new to this kind of thing, so I asked the nurse if I could touch the child. Oh, yes, she replied. It's okay. And then she stepped away to allow me some privacy. I put my hand on the baby's foot, closed my eyes, and I prayed. The most pathetic and worthless prayer I had ever prayed. Everyone said the child would die, and I believed them, and I thought, what kind of prayer could I possibly pray that would make any difference? I prayed that God would heal the child, but my heart wasn't in it. Finally, I finished the prayer, stepped away from the bed, let the nurse come to finish her work, and suddenly, suddenly, the nurse became excited. Something had changed. The monitor showed the hope of life for this baby. But why? The only thing that had happened between the two times the nurse checked the vitals was my worthless prayer. And yet, it had to be that prayer. Why would God honor an empty and, yes, faithless prayer? Well, I'm convinced, this pastor says, that it was because God wanted to show me that he didn't need my permission to answer this pathetic prayer of mine. So here's the deal. God doesn't have to answer your prayers. And he will only answer according to his will. But God expects you to pray boldly and in faith that he will answer if you ask. God expects you to pray boldly and in faith that he will answer if you ask. Dear ones, don't give God an out. Don't try to save him embarrassment or his feelings. Pray with boldness to an awesome God. An awesome God who truly cares for his people. Amen. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King. I confess to you and before my brothers and sisters that too many times in my prayer I have said, if it be your will. That is not a faithful prayer. Lord, you do nothing and answer nothing, but if it's your will, who am I to figure that one out? But I will commit myself to praying specifically, to praying boldly, and to praying relentlessly for what I feel should happen. Big things. I pray, Lord, that our property on Norbeck Road would be sold by the end of March. 
I pray, Lord, that in 2020, over a half a dozen people will come to faith in Yeshua because of the ministry of Son of David congregation. I pray, Lord, not just for the health of my children, but specifically, I pray that you would take care of Yael's tumor and that she would be able to have children. I pray, Lord, that you would take care of her husband's kidney and he will not have to receive another kidney or dialysis. I pray, Lord, that anyone in this congregation, if they are sick, if they let me know what the sickness is, I will pray specifically against that sickness and for your healing of it. Lord, make us not just a people of prayer, but a people of faithful prayer, abounding prayer, relentless prayer that will take our desires, our hopes, our wishes, and our problems to you, O Lord, until it's answered one way or another, because you are a God who does not leave prayer unanswered. We give you our lives. We offer up to you our prayer. I remind myself and others we need to stay in your word. And we thank you for the eternal life that you've given us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.